recently it's felt like one of those periods where the media and the press make a lot of analogies and references to 2008 or the global financial crisis or specific firms like Lehman Brothers. And, you know, look, some of that is warranted. I mean, the last few weeks we've seen everything from banks outright collapsing like Silicon Valley Bank and uh, also Signature Bank, then others seemingly teetering on the very edge and needing backstops either from other banks or multiple banks or their relevant central bank. Uh, for an example, out of the US, another one being First Republic Bank. Uh, and then you see what's happened more recently over in Europe with Credit Suisse and the sort of forced marriage with UBS. And whilst history certainly does rhyme and we do have a annoying and uncanny ability to forget or unlearn the lessons of the past, there are some unique circumstances in both the causes of the downfall of Silicon Valley Bank, but also the surrounding macro environment that fueled the flames, so to speak. It's a weird time right now. Uh, at a personal level for me, in terms of when I started paying attention to financial markets and the economy, uh, this is pretty much uncharted territory in respect to indicators like inflation, interest rates, and unemployment. And I'm speaking specifically to US data here, to be clear. But inflation remains quite elevated. Interest rates have increased significantly. But also on the flip side, unemployment is quite low. In fact, in the US, it is sitting at similar levels to what it was pre-pandemic. I suppose in reflection, that picture I just painted is actually a scenario uh, that is occurring across many parts of the world and not just the United States. One concern that has stuck around and certainly something that I've thought about a lot is how long does it take for all these changes to really bite Sure, a central bank might jack up interest rates today, but the flow-on effect might take some time to really pinch or worse, squeeze consumers or in the case of today's episode, a bank. And how long does that take exactly or does it just depend on the change in interest rates itself and how fast those changes occur? Either way, the story of Silicon Valley Bank is one of a mixture of factors, like anything, primarily questionable capital management but also the broader macro environment and how that has impacted not only the policy of the bank, but the specific clientele of the bank. And when I say the story of Silicon Valley Bank, I'm not beginning this episode at the founding or anything like that. Uh, what I will do is explain some of the reasons why the bank came under stress, especially recently, uh, what the White House and the Fed did to stop the bleeding for now, Similar to my past episode on Musk's acquisition of Twitter, we are kind of in the middle of this still playing out to an extent. Uh, so please keep that in mind as you listen along. I'm recording this at the very end of March. So uh, if you listen to this several weeks from now, potentially there'll be even further information. Maybe another bank's collapsed. I don't know. But in saying that, we'll close out the episode and you know just touch on some of the other things that have been going on in markets and the banking system overall as well. Thank you always for tuning in to another episode. My name is Dion and you are listening to the Market Pulse Podcast. If you go take a look at Silicon Valley Bank's share price over the past few years, you'll notice that following a short drop at the beginning of 2020 uh, due to COVID-19 when, when markets everywhere and broadly dropped, the bank surged up until 2022 and has since been on a bit of a gradual decline back to its level uh, pre-COVID. 
And this will make sense why, when we talk about the reasons which led to the bank collapsing a couple of weeks ago, if you keep looking, you'll specifically notice that on Wednesday the 8th of March, the share price pretty much fell off a cliff. Uh, it ended up being suspended from trading by the regulators. Uh, once the government and the FDIC, which is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, stepped in. And the reasons for the bank collapsing didn't occur specifically on that Wednesday, the 8th of March, and said they are related to decision-making in the years up to this point. However, this particular day ended up being a bit of a breaking point for the bank, uh, where investors and customers ultimately lost what remaining trust and faith in the stability and safety of the institution they had uh, left. So what happened? Well, Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB, as we'll say from here on out, went to the market and advised that it was looking to raise about $2.25 billion in fresh capital. And you can actually go and read this announcement. It's the latest one still sitting on their website right now. Uh, part of the announcement, they also advised that the same day they had completed a sale of its available for sale securities portfolio and, quote, sold approximately $21 billion of securities. So that's $21 billion worth of securities, which would result in an after-tax loss of approximately $1.8 billion for the first quarter of 2023. So both a sell-down of existing securities and assets that it owned, uh, quite a substantial amount, $21 billion, and an offering to raise further capital through share offerings to the tune of $2.25 billion dollars. The next day, Thursday the 9th of March, the stock price for SVB continued to plunge. Bloomberg reported that the Founders Fund, which is a venture capital uh, fund by Peter Thiel. If you haven't heard of Peter Thiel, I'm sure you, many of you have. He's one of the most well-known venture capitalists, uh, especially in Silicon Valley. He's a co-founder back in the days of PayPal, uh, a very early uh, investor of Facebook, as well as other very well-known brands now, such as Airbnb and LinkedIn. Uh, Bloomberg reported that he had actually started to advise his clients and companies to pull their money out of the bank altogether, out of SVB. Also on the same Thursday, the CEO of SVB held a conference call, asking for calm, of course, and in what now looks like, in hindsight, to be a bit of a futile attempt to stem the bleeding, as it was eventually reported by multiple outlets by the next day on Friday the 10th, that on Thursday, the Friday, so going back to the 9th, $42 billion worth of customer funds have been withdrawn or at the very least attempted to have been withdrawn. Browsing social media, you can see a lot of screenshots and reports of people saying that they actually did attempt to withdraw funds, but they were sort of sitting in loading screens or their, their withdrawal was sitting as pending going into Friday. So not all of it actually got out by the looks of it, but $42 billion was withdrawn or pending a withdrawal between Thursday and Friday. And look, at a certain point, a bank is just not going to survive that level of outflow. At, at that point, it isn't even just bleeding, it's straight up, you've lost entire limbs and you're struggling to even survive. Now on Friday, the 10th of March, the FDIC, which I mentioned before, along with the California State Regulatory Body, it announced in a press release that they had actually closed SVB and appointed the FDIC as a receiver. So in the space of around 48 hours, when merely two days prior on the 8th of March, the bank had announced that it was looking to raise fresh capital from investors, the bank went from that to just utter collapse 
by Friday the 10th of March. And an important consideration at this point, especially for depositors who had not managed to get their money out in time, was what would happen to everyone's funds. Well, the FDIC actually came out pretty quickly, really, to announce that all depositors would be covered. And this is pretty important because normally only deposits up to a certain limit, so that limit's $250,000 per person were insured, but the FDIC actually came out and said all depositors, uh, no matter the balance amount, would be completely covered by the FDIC. Sure, there are, I'm sure there are normal customers with the bank who might have a standard transaction or a savings account uh, that's got well below $250,000 sitting there in the balance. But as you probably gleaned from the name of the bank, one of the biggest segments of business that this bank specialized in were startups and tech firms in the Silicon Valley region. You know, and some of these are big names. In fact, CNBC reported on March 10th that around 95% of SVB's deposits were FDIC uninsured as in over that $250,000 cap. Uh, A little curious fact that got passed around amongst this whole debacle uh, is that the company Roku, which makes streaming device hardware, held approximately $487 million of its total $1.9 billion in cash just with Silicon Valley Bank alone. A little bit over the $250,000 cap. The short story here is that depositors were covered By Monday after the weekend, many had actually began to regain access to their funds uh, thanks to a government backstop. But it's also worth asking why it collapsed. Sure, SVB wasn't exactly JP Morgan or the Bank of America, but prior to this event, it was actually sitting at the 16th biggest bank in the United States and it held slightly over $200 billion in assets. Well, as I alluded to in the introduction, the collapse of SVB predominantly came down to a combination of in-house exposure management and investment decisions, as well as external macro factors impacting their client base. What ended up happening was these forces culminated, especially especially in the last 12 months, to put a very, very tight squeeze on the bank. let's talk about clients first. SVB was big in Silicon Valley, as you probably guessed, the United States center of startups and incubators and entrepreneurs and venture capital, betting big on what may or sometimes may not happen, (laughs) be the next Facebook, Apple or Google. In fact, in reading for this episode, it became quite clear that the bank itself was quite synonymous with the industry of tech startups and VCs in that they would always be around for events and conventions, offering their services, firmly establishing themselves as the bank for the industry of tech. And if you haven't noticed, the tech industry is also struggling right now. During the pandemic, when central banks cut interest rates to near zero, this was a boon for the tech industry. Not only were they doing well organically, of course, benefiting from a world in lockdown and working from home, There were new players such as Zoom jumping into the fray. But low to near zero interest rates meant another thing, access to cheap credit and lending. If you're a venture capitalist firm looking to invest in tech startups, it was a pretty cheap time to raise money and start spraying the cash hose at Silicon Valley startups. To me, it feels like a long time ago, but it was really only 12 months ago that the US interest rates were 
0.25 to 0.5%. They're actually 4.75 to 5%, uh, which is a massive increase across an extremely short timeline. So whilst it was easy to raise money, access cheap loans, attract new investors, that landscape has dried and, and business conditions have changed considerably. And you can actually just tell the industry is hurting because the last three to five months have seen headlines of even the biggest tech firms laying off large chunks of their global workforce. You know, in March, Amazon had said it was cutting 9,000 workers and a few months before they'd already announced a cut of 18,000 workers. Meta, formerly Facebook, cut another 10,000 jobs from an already cut 11,000 jobs. Australian firm Atlassian come out also in March saying it would cut 5% of its total staff. Twitter, well, I don't know, Twitter's a bit of a shit show at the moment, but he has cut down staff considerably. Microsoft is doing it, Yahoo, Zoom, Dell, PayPal, it goes on and on and on. So of course, what happens to your bank account balance when business conditions are taking a turn for the worse and it becomes harder to attract new funding and capital, but you still have expenses to meet, such as payroll, well, your balance gets a lot lower. This is a pain point number one for SVB. The clients were drawing down on their balances. The lack of easy credit and funding from VC funds meant that they weren't easily flush with cash anymore as they were just a few years prior. The belts had actually tightened and the good days were over thanks to the Fed raising interest rates so quickly. And that's an issue for SVB. Well, it can be an issue for any bank, but it was specifically an issue for SVB because of what they have done with their clients' money. When a bank takes on deposits, it doesn't just sit on them or lock them up in a safe. A deposit is a liability for a bank. It's money that it has to keep safe for someone, but at all times also owes that someone at any point. The curious case for SVB is they appeared to put far too much of it into an asset that is actually on face value considered safe and secure. That being US treasuries or US government bonds, whatever you want to call them. And US treasuries are indeed safe. They are a place to put your money and earn a yield or return. They are essentially an IOU from the US government that, and that is probably one of the safest IOUs you could get. And they're pretty easy to understand. You buy them, say I get one for $100 today that has a 10-year maturity and during that time I received a fixed rate of return on my $100, say 2% annually or $2 per year and at the end of the 10 years I get the face value back, my $100. But as with any investment in life, they aren't completely without risk and part of that risk depends on your own time horizon, uh, what treasuries you're specifically invested in and as mentioned, the movement of interest rates. The simple lesson here is that if interest rates rise, the value of US treasuries that you might be holding as the interest rates are rising decrease. So let me explain. Remember how we talked about the good old days of early 2020 to early 2022, when many central banks, including the US Fed, dropped interest rates to near 0% for that entire period? Well, during this time, new US government bonds or treasuries being issued were paying very low yields to investors because, you know, the central bank interest rates were so low. For example, one of the most cited, maybe probably the most famous bond benchmark on the globe is the US 10-year treasury bond, being the price and or yield currently of a 10-year US treasury bond. Next time you're listening to finance news on your TV or a podcast or whatever, you'll likely hear how that yield fell or rose uh, during that day of trading. When the US Fed cut rates to near zero in 2020, 
when the pandemic just hit us, the 10-year yield fell to around the 0.6% mark or 60 basis points, very low, but understandable given the rate cut by the central bank. Now, remember, a US Treasury note or bond is a safe investment. Sure, it's in 2020 not going to be paying much return, but an IOU from the US government is quite secure. It's also a popular instrument to then trade on to other banks or investors, uh, given how safe and reliable it is. But let's also recall what was happening to tech firms, especially startups and venture firms who were always on the hunt for fresh capital and funding to fuel their R&D. Rates were low. It was easier to get that fresh capital. You know, think of the famous motto of Facebook as cited by Zuckerberg being move fast and break things. Uh, Well, these firms were able to move faster with the rush of cash hitting their books. But recall, banks will not just sit on your deposits. They will invest them. What has become apparent, especially in the last few weeks following the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, is that much of what the bank invested in were both mortgage-backed securities and, you guessed it, US Treasury bonds, specifically at the time when those bonds were paying very low yields. The crunch really started to set in during 2022 and going into 2023. Central banks, uh, including the US Fed, started raising rates. The yield on a fresh new 10-year US Treasury bond started paying over 1% and then 2% and then 3%. Uh, But not those ones that SVB bought. No, they were still chugging away paying the rates based on when they were invested in or purchased when rates were low. You've potentially started to guess the problem here. As rates rose, the types of treasuries that SVB had tied a lot of money up in, not saying all, but a lot, a significant amount, being long-term treasury bonds, became increasingly less enticing as they were paying much less than the current 10-year treasury yield. In fact, what also happened from mid to late 2022 for US treasury yields specifically is that short-term interest rates crossed the return line of long-term interest rates. So in that a short-term US Treasury started paying more than a long-term one. For example, why lock up your money away for 10 years when you could get a three-month or a six-month Treasury note for a higher return? So what exactly happened to the ones that SVB were holding? Naturally, they fell in value. A common investing principle you hear is the inverse relationship between bonds and interest rates in this instance. And for the most part, as interest rates rise, the value of bonds fall due simply to the fact that those older bonds become much less attractive given the better returns being currently offered in the market. Why would you buy my treasury bond from me that's paying 0.6% when you could get one now for 4%? As rates rose, as we discussed earlier in the app, the type of clientele that SVB focused on found it much harder to raise fresh capital and new credit for investment. Loans just became much harder to get. If these clients were at the peak in terms of flush bank balances in 2020 into early 2022, very quickly those balances started to come back down. Remember, SVB, like all banks, invested clients' money. And when balances started to come down, the banks started to sell those US treasuries at substantial losses to the value they paid for them to assist with liquidity and fund their clients' account withdrawals. Enough of this type of activity occurred until the bank reached a breaking point a couple weeks ago now and the bond losses and withdrawals by clients became too much. The bank broke. You know, when I first started writing this, it was around mid-March, the news had only just occurred. Uh, The positive side to me taking my sweet time to write 
an episode is that I've been able to watch things play out beyond mid-March when the bank collapsed. Uh, firstly, the FDIC, which I mentioned at the top of the app, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, when all of this unfolded, moved the deposits and loans for the bank to a holding company so they, and they named it the Silicon Valley Bridge Bank because the actual Silicon Valley Bank entity proceeded to go into bankruptcy. Clearly trying to find a suitor for these deposits and loans, the FDIC uh, much more recently announced in the last week that another US bank called First Citizens Bank would be purchasing at a discount, of course, the deposits and loan book for SVB. Uh, meaning that if you were a customer of SVB, uh, following this, you would then sort of wake up the next day and become a customer of First Citizens Bank. Uh, the other interesting bit of news that I paid attention to with the story is the share sales by multiple executives prior to the collapse of the bank. The Wall Street Journal on the 14th of March said here, quote, Justice Department and SEC investigating Silicon Valley Bank's collapse Probe includes examining executive share sales before the bank bank's failure. Although in the interest of fairness, the journal article does go on to state the separate probes are in a preliminary phase. It may not lead to charges or allegations of wrongdoing. Uh, prosecutors and regulators often open investigations up to final institutions, financial institutions rather, or public companies suffer big unexpected losses and so on. A few days before this article, Bloomberg noted on the 11th of March that SVB CEO Greg Becker had sold $3.6 million worth of stock in the company only days before the collapse on February 27th. So yeah, about a week or so, maybe two weeks. Although again, to give the whole story, the sale was part of what is known as a planned sale or program where according to the SEC, the intention to sell the shares was lodged an entire month prior. So it's not like he specifically knew there'd be a bank run on that just days prior, but and that's a normal rule by regulators, of course. But look, there's no implication here, but I'm just rattling off a timeline of events. But the CFO had also filed to sell shares, which had occurred on the same day on February 27th. Uh, not 3.6 million like the CEO, but just over half a million, uh, representing a third of their holdings. Other interesting sales, and you can see this um, in those articles I mentioned, but um, another great count to follow is Unusual Whales. They track unusual share price purchases and sales. Uh, the General Counsel for SVP selling 19% of their stake on February 5th. The Chief Marketing Officer selling a quarter of their stake on Feb 1st. Again, all part of a properly announced planned trade, but the timing of this, at least according to that Wall Street Journal report, was enough to raise eyebrows at the Justice Department and SEC. Anyway, that's an ongoing matter. There's been a pretty turbulent time in the banking space, broadly speaking, over the last little while. Another US bank, although not as big, but not a small bank by any means, Signature Bank, uh, that was also taken over and shut down by authorities in New York. Uh, no doubt you've also heard of the fall of Credit Suisse. For the most part, uh, the Credit Suisse share price has been on a steady decline for about a decade now. In fact, the first thing I thought when the news broke about Credit Suisse was that it's actually been mumblings of their, shall we say, uh, struggles, maybe a potential collapse for, for quite some time already. There was this funny story back in 2022, and I had to go re-look it up. It involved an ABC journalist, and that's Australian Broadcasting Corporation, not, not American, to be clear. Uh, this ABC journalist in, I think, yeah, I think it was October, yeah, 1st of October 2022, 
his name's David Taylor. He tweeted, credible source tells me a major international investment bank is on the brink. Didn't say anything further about it or didn't name what bank uh, the source was talking about. But the ABC journalist then went on to actually delete the tweet after the weekend. And apparently the ABC had to remind this person of their social media guidelines or something. But basically it fed this sort of rumors going around, saw it on social media and Reddit of a European investment bank collapsing and most fingers at that time were pointing to potentially Deutsche Bank, but basically a lot of it had, had narrowed down to, mate, he's probably talking about Credit Suisse. So um, this has kind of been, float, I guess, floating around for a little bit now. Over the past week or so, essentially what's happened is the Swiss government has forced a, a merger or a takeover of Credit Suisse by the other major Swiss bank, uh, UBS. What it also seems to be happening with this is there's going to be a significant reduction in costs, which is probably going to mean a lot of axing of jobs, especially on the Credit Suisse end as UBS take them over. So it's not just uh, siloed to the tech industry anymore, but also investors, uh, specifically they're talking about bank hybrid bond holders will probably be wiped out. So those hybrid bond holders in Credit Suisse, that is. Apparently, in shareholders will be mostly wiped out, although, that, again, that's not very clear. And I'll sort of caveat it by referring to the very top of the episode and saying this is something that's playing out as we speak and so potentially some of the details which I've shared today on this may change. But that is all from the Market Pulse podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, you've been tuning into episode 69. Nice. I know it's been a while between drinks, uh, but appreciate the support nonetheless. If you do have any questions, you can send those through to marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. But other than that, I hope you have a great week wherever you are. My name is Dion and you are listening to the Market Pulse Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Cheers.